Let's begin by reading. I know it's a little hard to read the projector screen. The lighting situation here is uh, not optimal, but uh, it's okay. You, you have a Bible. Let's begin by reading from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says this. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry insomuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. That's Hebrews 8.6 from the New King James Version. So I said this to you last week, if you were here, that the book of Hebrews emphasizes the word better, that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. And what he has accomplished for us is better than anything that was provided for the people of Israel under the old covenant. And Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. He's a minister of a new covenant. He himself is the guarantee of that covenant. And the Greek word for new and again, the book of Hebrews often talks about new. Jesus has made a new and living way for us. The Greek word new implies, in this context, not just something that's more recent. Like, is that a new shirt? No, I've had this for several years, that type of thing. But it means better. Not only new, but superior to the old. Above the old. Better. Hallelujah. Amen. So we have a new covenant, and that's a better covenant. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God spoke to the Israelites. He says, at many times and in many ways by the prophets. And if you don't mind me going a little, you know, a little beneath the surface here, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And in Greek, it uses a very interesting expression. I'll endeavor to trans, uh, pronounce it. Polumeros kai polutropos. Polumeros kai polutropos. Which is like a little expression. Like we might say, hunky-dory, uh, peachy keen, happy-go-lucky, little expression. This is kind of like a little expression. And what it means is a little bit here, a little bit there. Here a little, there a little, now and then. It means something that is partial, but not complete. F fragments, but not the whole. And so that means this, that the revelation of God, this is what he's telling us, the revelation of God from the Old Testament is useful, and it's helpful, but it is incomplete, and it is imperfect, you see. But the same verse, this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says, But in these last days, by the way, if the writer of Hebrews, who I told you last week I'm convinced is Paul, actually, I won't get into that. But if, if, if the writer says that he's spoken to us in the last days, and he wrote this 2,000 years ago, we must be living in the last of the last days. He says, in these last days, God has spoken to us directly, by the person of his son. So men of old spoke 
for God because the Spirit moved on them. But Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Word manifested in the flesh. He is the will of God in action. He didn't just speak at times when he was inspired. Every time he opened his mouth, it was the Word of God. Can I get an amen? Notice the scripture as well. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities. So again, when he says the law, he includes entire Old Testament. It's a picture or it's a type that's pointing us, pointing them to something better that's coming in the future. But the New Testament is not a type. It's the anti-type. It's not a symbol. It's the thing being symbolized. It's the reality. So would you rather have a picture of a house or a house? You can't live in a photograph. If you're a single woman here today, would you rather have a photograph of your future husband or the man himself? Some of you look like you're confused by that question. Well, you, you can't marry a shadow. You can't marry, you can't, you can't marry a picture, right? Amen. So, you know, as you're seated there, as you look down, look around, you, you see a shadow of your form, but that's not you. That's just an image that's around you, right? So I study the Old Testament, but I live in the new. There is much to be gained from the Old Testament, but I myself am a New Testament man. And so are you. When I say man, I mean person, of course. Hmm? And when I read the Old Testament, I read it with New Testament eyes. I read it in the light of the new because the Bible's progressive revelation. Hmm? So when I read the Old Testament, I know that it has been superseded and replaced by the new. Are you listening to me? Think of it this way. And the reason I'm saying that is because sometimes I meet people who are very dedicated and sincere, but they are what I would call Old Testament Christians. They're what I, most of their preaching, many churches, most of their preaching is only from the Old Testament. You know, and, the, and you, in, you can tell from a lot of Christians that the part of the Bible that they read is just Old Testament. They read about David and Goliath and, you know, and Daniel and the lion's den, which, which is fine. But they, they are not knowledgeable. They, they don't understand that we're li- not living then. We're living in the New Testament. Are you listening to me? So you have to interpret the Old Testament with the understanding that you have in the new. Otherwise, you're going to be hopelessly confused. Hmm? So let me give you an example. I personally, John Routon, I am fascinated with history. 
I, I like to read history, you know, uh, different books. I love to read biographies. You know, I've read biographies of famous composers, uh, musical composers, classical music, that type of thing. I, uh, earlier last year, I read a big biography on uh, uh, Nel, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller, who was at one point the richest man in the world, and, and things like that. Very interesting to read about those things like that. Um, I can learn from the past, but I cannot live in the past. I have to live in the now. By the way, that's one thing that's wrong with a uh, 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 difficulty with many Christians. They're always living in the past. They're actually trying to relive yesteryear. They, they, got, it, they, got, this, they got a certain place in their life and they're stuck in, and they're always hearkening back to 1990, you know, 1976, 19, whatever it is. They're, they're, they're always trying to go back and relive that. I would like to help you. That's never going to happen. You're wasting your time. God wants you to live in the now. Today is the day the Lord has made. Thank God for yesterday, but it's gone. Are you listening to me? Good, bad, or ugly, it's gone. Sometimes it's not the bad things in the past that hold people back. It's the good things. Churches, oh, I could preach another sermon. Maybe somebody needs to hear this. Churches are like time machines. They enable you to go back in history. How far do you want to go back? Would you like to go back to the Middle Ages? Visit your local Roman Catholic church. They'll take you there because they're stuck there. I'm sorry, that's a fact. Or maybe you prefer the 1800s. We'll visit your local Methodist church. That's where they're stuck. They've never gone beyond that. Would you like to go to the 1980s and 1990s? Visit your local Ramo Word of Faith church. They've never gone beyond that. Many of them, not all, but many of them, not even all Roman Catholic churches, not even all Methodist churches, but most of them are stuck in that area. You got to keep moving forward. When you start getting, see, faith is not sentimentality. When you start getting sentimental, you missed the spirit of God. Oh, I remember that blue chair. Why did Pastor Jeppy change the church pews? That wooden pew, that's where I was saved. That's where God, it's a piece of wood. It, 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 it's, not, you know, it's not an idol in your life. It's just something to sit on. Don't, don't get so, so sentimental that you can't let God do what he wants to do right now. It's real quiet because some of you don't like that message. Well, God bless you anyways. Think about it. Chew on it. To study history is good. To make history is better. The people, the individuals who have made the greatest impact on society, for good or bad, were not trying to reenact a bygone era. They were not trying to go back and relive the medieval period. They were not trying, they're not pretending that they were living in the Italian Renaissance, you know, in this old, old history. They're people who live in the now. Do you understand that? Likewise, likewise, spiritually, the people that God uses to make the greatest impact are living in the now. They know the times. And you and I are living in the New Testament. We're not living under the Old Testament. 
Well, I know that already. Well, good. Now you hear it twice. Praise the Lord. And if the new is better, then the old is inferior. So if I'm going to go back and live under the Old Testament, remember I said you can learn from it. There's much to be gained by it. We do read it. We do study it. Don't misunderstand me. I didn't say take a pair of scissors and cut your Bible in half. I didn't tell you to do that. But if I go back and try to live under the Old Testament, then I'm taking a step backwards. Hmm? And all scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament was written for us, but the New Testament is written to us. It's addressed. See, the Old Testament was written to spiritually dead people. They didn't have what you have. So you can't go back and just imitate everything that David did. Well, he had multiple wives. I think I'll try that. But you have something. Maybe he had something that you don't have, headaches. But you have something that he didn't have, eternal life. Can I get a better amen? Do I have, don't make me come back there. I will, okay? Amen. So you can't just copycat those people. They're not living in the covenant that you have right now. Amen? Now, you understand this, that the word testament means covenant. It's the same word. So as Jesus ate the Passover meal in the upper room with his disciples, what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, he said to them, it's recorded in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. I know it's very simple, but maybe just to kind of see things in a slightly different angle. Jesus went to the cross not only to pay for our sins, but to establish a new covenant. So we often say this, Jesus did not come into this world to start a new religion. Amen, that's true. However, he did come into this world to start a new covenant. That is to ratify the covenant, to enact the covenant. Hallelujah. To make it valid. Hmm. So we have a better covenant in Christ. A covenant is an agreement. It's a treaty. It's an accord or a solemn contract between two or more persons. The Bible itself is a book of covenant. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The language of the Bible is covenant language. So, like, have you ever signed a contract, some sort of legal contract? Well, you know, a lot of times... You, you recognize that it's not written in your vernacular, your ordinary street language. Contracts are usually not written in Nagamese. Right? Kenikase, balase. It's not written. It's not written in just vernacular street language. It has its own, its own language. That's why, you know, they have lawyers. Because it has a, a vocabulary, and the words have meaning. And what you think it means, and it may not be exactly what is meant. So, so people, you know, 
In fact, that's why in the, in the Gospels, it says like, you know, there were scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and doctors of the law. They're people, when it says scribes, they're not, they're not secretaries. They're not people who, you know, take dictation and type letters. That's not what it means. They're people who are studying God's word, you see, which in and of itself, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. So the language of the Bible is covenant. And if you don't know that, see, you can read the Bible purely for like consolation, reassurance, and and just, you know, um, you know, to to encouragement. And, and yeah, that, that's great. That's great. That's great. But just remember that the Bible is not a hallmark greeting card. You know, you, so you, you know, it's your birthday and somebody gives you a card and, you know, and, and they have a little poem inside, don't they? And you know what? They didn't even write the poem. They, they paid someone else to write the poem. <laughs> Maybe they didn't even read it themselves. Have you ever like got a birthday card from somebody and when you read it, you realize this is a Mother's Day card. This is not a he didn't he didn't even he didn't even read what it was said in, inside you. So so this is not just like some kind of a cheery little thing, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm feeling sad, how about you? It's not some kind of little, you know, looky looky, here comes cookie. It's, it, it's a legal document. Legal document. That means it has that kind of weight. That kind of force. God's kingdom is not nilly-willy. Just like, whatever. I didn't feel like doing anything today, so I just thought I would just not, not heal anybody today. It's, it's, it's run on principles. God is a principled God. Hmm? It's run on spiritual laws. Spiritual laws. See, that's the kind of God we have. It doesn't mean he's impersonal. It doesn't mean that he's not a person with a personality. He certainly is. But this is an aspect of his personality. He's principled. Right? He's not a feeling God. He's a principled God. Amen? Hallelujah. So, think about this, just briefly. Before the flood waters covered the earth... God said to Noah in Genesis 6.18, but I will establish my covenant with you. And by the way, this is the first time the word covenant is found in the Bible. I will establish, it's not maybe the first sort of reference or allusion to a covenant, but it's the first time the word is actually used. I will establish my covenant with you. So the Lord, in this verse, that's once again, that's Genesis 6.18. The Lord promised. He made a promise. Covenant is a set of promises. I promise to do this. I promise to do that. Sometimes it's, and you promise to do this, and you promise to do that. The Lord promised to spare Noah and his family from the impending doom provided that they built the ark as he instructed them, see. So, and the Bible tells me that he did that. Noah built that big boat by faith. And, and you know, it actually took quite a long time to build it. I don't remember exactly, but I believe it's like, you know, several hundred years, if I'm not mistaken. If you read the book of Genesis, it took, I think it took, I may be wrong, but several hundred years for him to build that thing. Because it's just him and his family. I don't know. Maybe he had other help. I'm not sure. 
So there's no rain, there's no flood. He didn't wait for the flood to come and then say, Ham, hand me my hammer. <laughs> so that means faith prepares. Faith prepares. That's what he did. So if you believe God has heard your prayer, then you would prepare. Just a thought. Hallelujah. Hmm. And then, after the waters subsided, he spoke in Genesis chapter 9, verse 9, and said to him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So it's like the same language. But this time he promised something else. He promised he would never again destroy the earth by a flood. And that the rainbow would be a sign of the covenant. What does that mean? It would be a witness to this promise. It would be a reminder, a memorial of this promise. So when I see that rainbow, I'll be reminded. Throughout the Bible, the word remember is often covenant language. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, how can we forget you? We're not going to forget you, are we? He's saying, honor the covenant. Honor the covenant. So the rainbow was a reminder of that promise. Side thought. Be very blunt and frank with you. I find it very ironic that in this day and age, perverted people, sexually perverted people, homosexuals, have adopted the rainbow as a symbol of their movement. You know, when I was a kid, I'm sure there was a time where my mother gave me a shirt that had like rainbow stripes, but I would not dare wear a shirt like that today, I'm sorry to say. Hmm? I mean, when I was a kid, if you had a little rainbow flag, nobody thought anything of it. Oh, isn't that nice? But I don't want any rainbow flags on this church. I, I guarantee you that I don't want that. Let me help you. The rainbow. God did not say he would never again judge the world. He just won't use water next time. That's why it's so ironic. It's real quiet in this place. You're making me nervous when you're so quiet like that. <laughs> Hallelujah. Not only that, the Bible, it's actually in the book of, I think, First or Second Peter. The Bible refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. So he wasn't just a shipbuilder. He is also a preacher. I wonder what he preached. I think the implication is he warned his generation. He warned them. A flood is coming. Destruction is coming. You need to repent. You need to turn away from this. And maybe if we were more covenant-minded, we would do the same thing. Because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the time of the coming of the Son of Man. 
Well, we see the world around us and it's degrading and it's falling apart like in the days of Noah. But where are the people like Noah who are speaking to this world? You better, you better change. Destruction is coming. No, Brother John, we should just preach on love and grace. The Apostle Paul preached in the city of Athens. First time he was there, as far as we know. He doesn't know anybody in that city. And in his sermon, he said, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he has given assurance of this by the man whom he has chosen, whom he has raised from the dead. He's preaching to people who don't know anything about God at all. And in his message, he tells them, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. It has nothing to do with grace. It has a lot to do with fear and wanting to be accepted by people. Amen. That's why some people don't want to speak the truth. We should speak the truth in love. Amen. Let's move forward. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 3. This is a side thought here. Maybe it's a side thought. Genesis 9, 3. God said, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So Noah was the first Naga. Praise God. Okay. <laughs> every moving thing. I think the Lord said that to Jeppy too. I'm sure he did. Every moving thing. I'm moving. I better watch myself. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Just a side thought. So Noah and his descendants were not vegans. Extreme vegetarians. They weren't vegetarian. Some people have said, I've heard even some Christians say, well, you know, God told Adam and Eve you can eat the trees of the garden, so we should be vegetarian. Well, here is Noah. See, all of you are the descendants of Noah. Of course you are. Everybody else got killed. That's the only family that survived. So everybody here is, you know, Noah is your grandfather, whether you like it or not. And he was not a vegetarian. You might say, well, I'm a vegetarian. Well, God bless you. But don't try to tell me that I have to be one. If you don't want to eat meat, that's fine. Some, maybe some people, like I don't know, maybe some people shouldn't eat so much meat. But just saying. And this is really what I want to say. He, could, he, said, he said, you can, you, can, you can eat meat, but you can't eat blood. Because the life of the creature it's in his, is in the blood. It's so interesting. He said, you can't. Now, it, maybe he wasn't a naga. I'm not so sure now. He said, you cannot eat blood. And just a thought, later, much, much later, God gave the same prohibition to the children of Israel. You cannot eat blood. In fact, under penalty of death. Leviticus 17, 14. Whoever eats it, meaning blood, shall be cut off. They don't mean trim your fingernails, honey. He means... Put to death. Why? Because the life is in the blood. That's why. 
because blood is connected to covenant. Blood is something that God honors. Isn't it interesting that God said to Cain, the voice of your brother's, brother's blood is crying out to me. I guess it's a figure of speech, but it sounds like he's saying blood has a voice that God can hear. Hallelujah. It's real quiet in here. I don't feel like I have a friend in the world up here. Praise the Lord. After the Tower of Babel, when people were dispersed over the face of the earth, God made a covenant with a man named Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, Genesis chapter 12, you could just look it up in your, in your Bible. It may be hard to read the screen. That's, that's okay. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, the Lord gave this man seven promises. And really, if you read these two verses, it's like his call, like a call to ministry. It's like his calling. This is when he was called. Just an ordinary person, just some guy out there, just living somewhere in Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a sophisticated city for the time. And God called him out. You're going to leave that place. I have something else for you. And what God said in these seven promises forms like the basic framework of the covenant. If you want to summarize it in seven points, here it is. And I'll read it to you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God said these things, this was in the age of nation building. The age of nation building. And notice the Lord began by saying, he referred to, I will make of you a single great nation. That's Israel. It's not Israel, the people of Israel. But he ends his framework of, of covenant. He ends his seven promises by referring to all the families of the earth. That means all nations. See, to God, a nation is not a colored area on a map. To God, a nation is a family of people. A people group, a group of people. Huh? So he said, all the nations will be blessed through you. In fact, it's interesting, later, I'll read this to you, in Genesis chapter 22. See, that's chapter 12. Later, toward the, more toward the end of his life, in Genesis 22, verse 17, God promised to multiply his descendants. God's a multiplier, you see. Multiply his descendants. And he said, like the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Well, there's a lot of stars and there's a lot of sand. But you see, uh, sand is of the earth. It's natural. Stars are celestial. 
They belong to the heavenlies. They're above us. Because there's going to be two families. A natural family, just the natural lineage, the Jewish people, and then the family of faith. Those who are like him, who believe the promise, believe the gospel of God. Hallelujah. And in this little covenant, this well, I shouldn't say little covenant, in, in these seven promises, God used the word bless five times. In two verses, he uses the word bless. So interesting, blessed. We use the word bless frivolously. Somebody sneezes, bless you. Bless y'all. How y'all doing? I'm blessed. Yeah, we just kind of use it rather casually sometimes. I don't think we take it uh, too seriously, but I'm sure this is not a frivolous little bless you. I bless you, Abraham. You be blessed. You be blessed, Abraham. This, is, this means to be empowered to prosper. Empowered by God to prosper. It means good things coming to you. Good being done for you. It also means happy with divine favor. It also means to speak words that release favor into your life. Hallelujah. See, it, we know this, but like... They brought little children to Jesus, and he put them on his lap, and he blessed them. He didn't give them money. And let me bless you, kid. Here's 10 rupees. He spoke words that released God's favor over their life. That's that's worth more than 10 rupees. After Jacob deceived his brother, Esau came in with tears and said to his father Isaac, Bless me too. Bless me too. You know, he's so angry, he wanted to kill Jacob. What's the big deal? An old man just says a bunch of stuff over you. He can't even see properly. No, those words, those words release the favor of God. Those are covenant words. It's part of the covenant of God. The children of Israel are covenant people. They think covenant. It's part of their culture. It's part of who they are. See, like, um, you know, I suppose in New Delhi, you know, there there would be, uh, you know, available on exhibit or you can help me. I'm not really sure. But, you know, the Constitution of India. Right. You know, you you could maybe go there. And and when you're in school, I mean, you study it and that type of thing. Israel didn't have a constitution. Had a covenant. It was made from God. God wrote their constitution. Are you listening to me? They were the nation of God. Praise the Lord. So this was a covenant of blessing. So covenant people should be distinguished from others because it should be evident in their life the goodness, the prosperity from the Lord, the favor that's upon their life. Covenant people are blessed. I said, covenant our people are blessed. And if we're not experiencing all of God's blessings, maybe we need to change our thinking a little bit. Maybe we need to reexamine, you know, what we believe and, and the words we speak. Amen. Here's another thought. Not only did God promise to bless, he also promised to curse. He promised to curse those who would dishonor Abraham. Now, the King James Version uses the word curse twice. I will curse those who curse you. But it's two different Hebrew words. 
One means to curse, you know, like the opposite of bless. But the other word means to dishonor. It, the Hebrew word means to disregard, to uh, treat as insignificant. Eh, you're nothing. To uh, slight, to lightly esteem. So what does that tell me? I think that it means we should be careful that we don't mess with a covenant man. Look at your neighbor and say, don't mess with a covenant man. Look back at the person and say, that would be me. <laughs> huh? Now, that means we should think twice before we dishonor a fellow believer. We're all together. We're all friends here, right? I'm sure this is something we always have to revisit. We should think twice. We should pause before we dishonor a fellow believer, especially those who walk with the Lord, who are living a life to please God. We should think twice about that. Hmm? That doesn't mean we always agree with others because we don't. That doesn't mean we necessarily condone their actions, their behavior, because you know, maybe we don't. But there is a difference between constructive criticism and tearing somebody down out of envy or spite. May I say this to you? I don't know if it's really a big issue here in this part of the world, but most people who like oppose what we call, I don't like to call it the prosperity message because that sort of sounds... In, in some people's minds, a little bit cheap. And, but anyways, people who like vehemently oppose, quote unquote, teaching on biblical prosperity, let's say it that way. Fundamentally, their problem, for many, for many, maybe most, their problem is not theological. It's envy. It's rooted in envy. I could preach three sermons right now. Some of you are looking at me enviously. Listen, when you see somebody who's being blessed, does that bug you? I guess that means yes or no. I don't know. Like somebody gets something nice. Does that bother you? Can you genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice? Or does it just irritate you? Or do you fake it? God bless you. <laughs> somebody gets a new car. Can you, can you honestly be glad for them? Praise God. Isn't it funny when somebody wants you to rejoice with you? You know, hey, brother, I got a new motorbike. Look at my new motorbike. And he, he's like just innocently, honestly saying, praise the Lord, isn't God good? And you're going, not really, because <laughs> I don't have a new motorbike. <laughs> See, that's envy, right? You've heard this before. And, you know, people get irritated if a fellow Christian gets like a new house, new car, new husband, whatever, you know. <laughs> But when, but, but when you get the new house, the new car, when you get married, suddenly you're like, you know, you're quoting Bible verses. I'm a child of Abraham, praise the Lord. <laughs> that means it's rooted in envy. And I've said this before, I'll just say it again. That attitude will hinder God from blessing you. You know, when you envy somebody, you're dishonoring them. That's a bad attitude. Get rid of that. Even if you have to kind of like, okay, you're going to rejoice. 
I'm next. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm, I'm genuinely glad. This person has no, no, no angst against me. They're just happy that God's blessed them. Why not share in that? Why, why try to be a, why rain on everybody's parade? Why try to spoil, why be a killjoy? Some Christians are killjoys. Hmm? You know, they're always thinking, well, <laughs> yeah, her wedding was nice, but mine was better. <laughs> you killjoy. <laughs> why do you do that? You don't need to do that. Let's move on. Praise the Lord. I'm going to leave through at the back door anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Later, we're just kind of roaming here and there. I've got to wrap this up at some point. Later, God changed Abram's name to Abraham. He changed his name because he changed his destiny. And there's a reason why I'm saying this. I'm not just trying to be funny or something. He instituted circumcision. In Genesis 17, verse 11, the Lord said to Abraham, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision, if you don't know what I'm talking about, after the service, Brother Lloyd will explain it to you. <laughs> you want to come up here now? Oh, just wait. <laughs> circumcision is not the covenant. It was a reminder of the covenant, a sign. It was the, like the rainbow, a sign. I know this is a little awkward, but this is a strange thing. Does this ever kind of strike you as strange? You don't have to say amen. I know you're thinking amen. I mean, why after several years, this is not the initial encounter with Abraham. This is chapter 17. God spoke to him chapter 12 and actually end of chapter 11. So, why did God suddenly initiate this thing? It's a reminder. Why? Because Abraham was forgetting. Uh, we just read in the previous chapter that he had a good night with Hagar. <laughs> so God said, this will help you to remember. <laughs> so in the case of Noah... God put something in the sky far above him. Something that would appear at certain times depending on the seasons, the weather. But in the case of Abraham, this was in his body. Wherever he goes, it's there, it's there all the time. And speaking as a man, it's not something you would easily forget. Meditate upon these things. <laughs> Selah. <laughs> And, and, and there's a reason why I'm saying this. And later, the Lord, along with two angels, appeared to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 18, verse 17, the Lord said this. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. That's the first promise of the seven and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's the seventh promise. That means the Lord, the Lord Jesus, was willing to reveal his plans, disclose his intentions 
make known the mystery of his will to a man because they had a covenant. God will share things with the covenant man he will not share with others. And if we are covenant men and women, we should have some sense of the plan and the will of God for our lives. We should have some sense of what's coming our way because when the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said he will show you things to come. So if we have a better covenant and God showed Abraham what he was about to do, surely God would show you what he's about to do. Maybe not everything because you don't need to know everything, but he would show you what you need to know. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And so the Lord told Abraham he intended to judge, investigate, and then judge the city of Sodom. And the Bible says concerning the people of Sodom, they were great sinners against the Lord. I have to pause here again. We hear some people, and I'm afraid it's going to seep into this part of the world too. We hear some people, even the church world, say things like, love is love. See, that's a justification for perversion. Love is love. You, if you've heard that before, some of you are nodding. I think maybe you've heard some, that expression. People say, love is love. Well, that, that's, that's, that's wrong. And what if a man loves seven women? What if a woman loves seven men? What if, what if a, an adult loves a child in that sense? What if a man loves an animal? That, that's wrong, 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 wrong. God has placed boundaries in our lives. Just because you have some kind of feeling, that don't mean it's okay. Hmm? Then again, we hear some Christians say, sin is sin, which means, okay, it's, it's, it's not right, but hmm, you know, a lot of things aren't right. Well, on the one hand, that's true. You know, sin is wrong. It's offensive to God. But on the other hand, the way people are using that expression, that's not true. These people were called great sinners against the Lord. And God dealt severely with them. He didn't deal the same way with them as he did every other city. Sin is sin. That, that's, that's, that's a pretext for living in a perverted life. Are you out there today? Then again, some Christians, and I've heard them say this, some Christians say, well, okay, right, these people are homosexuals. They're, actually, the better word is they're sodomites. Hmm? They say, well, yes, but Abraham prayed for them, that God would have mercy on them. That's not correct either. Read it, Genesis chapter 18, more carefully. He prayed for the sake of righteous people who lived in that city. He said, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the whole city for their sake? He did not pray for the LBGTQXYZ, LTD, whatever it is, plus, plus, minus, minus. He did not pray for that. He prayed for the righteous people that God would spare them. And he started out with 50. And you know, Abraham was a good bargainer. He could buy tomatoes from the sub wallet in our market and get them real cheap because he started at 50, worked it all the way down to 10. And God said, if there, the Lord said, if there's 10, I'll spare the whole city. By the way, just want to say this. Don't get me wrong. Some people, you know, have this, every message from them is doom and gloom. Well, 
I don't believe God's going to destroy Nagaland because why? Because there's, there's more than 10 righteous people in this room right now. And God told Abraham, I'll spare it for the sake of 10. We got, we got more than 10 right here in this room. Hallelujah. But we need to be people like Abraham who will stand in the gap and pray for the land. Hallelujah. Hmm? So that tells me something. There were not 10 righteous people in Sodom. But angels, two angels rescued Lot and his family. He did for them just exactly what God did for Noah. And because of covenant. In fact, it's so sad to me. Lot was hesitant to leave. He didn't even, I mean, after a terrible, unthinkable thing took place at his house... The angel said, get out of this place. God is going to destroy this place. And Lot lingers. The sun was already up in the morning. And he's like, you know, making his toast and, you know, boiling his egg for that breakfast or something. I don't know what he's doing. He's lingering. And the Bible says the angel took hold of his arm and his wife and his two daughters and physically escorted them out of the city. It says, because the Lord is merciful. And he told them, flee from this place. Here's my point. Because we cannot do anything until you leave. Why? Well, Lot doesn't have a covenant with God, but a covenant man prayed. A covenant man prayed. I want to give you another thought. If you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 13 or or thereabouts, you don't have to turn there. It says that Abraham's nephew Lot traveled with him. They went to Egypt together. They they came out of uh, the Chaldeans together. They, They went to Egypt, came out of Egypt together, and they were blessed. And Lot was blessed. In fact, Lot had so many sheep and cattle and herds and and people working for him that he and Abraham couldn't live together. The land could not sustain them. They had so much. In fact, the herdsmen between Abraham and Lot were getting into strife because they all want grazing. They want their animals to graze and the, the land's not big enough to support all of them. They have so much stuff. And so Abraham said, you know, let us not strive. We're We're kinsmen. So you go one way and I'll go another. They had to part company amicably. And I like the fact that Abraham, he wanted to end strife in his home and he gave deference to his nephew. What would you like to do? If you want to go here, then I'll go there. If you want to go here, then I'll go there. And the Bible says Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley well watered. And he said, I'll go there. Like the best looking land. He chose the best. He could have said, well, you know, Abraham, you know, you're senior to me. You're the one who has a covenant with God. So what you say, no, he he chose the best for himself. And he pitched his tent towards Sodom. But when the angels came to Sodom, he wasn't pitching his tent towards Sodom. He was living in Sodom. At the end of the story, 
He had to flee for his life. Where are the servants? Where are the cattle? Where are, where are all the gold and the silver? And he ended up hiding in a cave. What happened? Well, I think it's important where you live and with whom you associate. You can't think that you can live in Sodom and it won't affect you when those despicable people came around his house. And you know the story. Lot went out. He was trying to do something honorable. He's trying to protect the angels, you know. But he calls these people, my brothers. Don't, they're not your brother, Lot. They're not your brother. They're the devil's children. They're not, they're not your brother. You can't live in Lot and it not, I can't live in Sodom and it not affect your mentality. Are you out there today? Hallelujah. Heavy stuff. Let me wrap this up in just a few minutes here. Fast forward. God extended this covenant to the descendants of Abraham through Moses. The old covenant contained two main elements, to put it simply. The law and the sacrifice. I mean, if you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus especially, you'll see two big things. Law and sacrifice. The law is a moral code. This is, this is the rules. This is how God wants you to live. They, the children of Israel said, it will be righteousness for us if we obey all the commandments of the Lord our God. This, this is what is right and wrong in the sight of God. But then the sacrifice was to make amends when you did not follow all his commandments, you see. Hmm? But this was only a temporary arrangement. It was not a permanent cure. In fact, the Bible says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It made a payment for their wrongdoing, but it did not affect their conscience. It did not change them. So God promised he would make a new covenant. Let me just go through this quickly. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them, write my law on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He said, I'm going to make a new covenant. And when saying new, that means the old is inferior. Saying new it means the old one, he found fault with it. It was imperfect. Not because God is imperfect, but because mankind is imperfect, you see. And the old covenant was based on a system of punishment and reward as external motivation. So God told the Israelites, if you obey me, you'll be blessed, you'll be blessed, you'll be blessed. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed, you'll be cursed, you'll be cursed. That was supposed to be external motivation so that they would do what's right. They would live right. But that failed. The law didn't make them righteous. The law only proved they were unrighteous. The law 
was a seven foot or six foot measuring tape for a five foot man. The law was a mirror that showed them their defects. When I wake up in the morning, I don't know about you men, but when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror over my sink, you know, I startle myself. I see, you know, I need a shave. Well, of course, you know, more than that, but I see that, you know, my face is dirty. I see myself in the mirror. But I don't take the mirror off the wall and clean my face. The mirror can't clean my face. The mirror shows me that I need to be clean, but the mirror cannot change my condition. The law was like a mirror. It showed them that they were unrighteous, but it could not make them righteous. Hallelujah. But the new covenant is based on the power of eternal life. That God has changed our inward nature. God doesn't just want us to do what's right because we have no choice. He wants us to do what pleases him because we want to. How many of you wives, you know, you want your husband to act a certain way. You want him to behave. You want, how many of you wives want your husband to love you? Just two. Okay, well, God bless you both. Praise the Lord. And the rest of you. Oh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Okay. <laughs> How many of you wives want your husband to love you? Can I see your hand? To show you love. All right, well, so, so to treat you better. Go ahead, Jeppy. Raise your hand so they can all see it. <laughs> Everybody, all you wives, I want your husband to treat you better. Can I see your hand? It's no indictment. It's just a fact. So why don't you wives go buy an AK-47? pointed at that rascal's head and said, there's going to be some changes in this house. <laughs> if you don't say I love you 10 times, I load the magazine. <laughs> because you don't just want him as a robot to subserviently say those words out of fear, to obey you, you know, out of threat of punishment. I don't know, maybe you do. <laughs> don't you, if you're honest, don't you want him to want to do that? Some of you, are, I don't know, what, what, what is it? <laughs> Isn't, is that, maybe, maybe not, is, is that right? You're, I'm not embarrassing anybody here. Isn't that right? Wouldn't you, I'm going to get in trouble. To, I'm already in trouble. But anyway, here we go. Instead of the wife saying, you never say I love you. And he says, I love you. No, no. <laughs> you want him without being told to say, honey, I love you. So, you know, uh, some, you give something to your kids and they just grab it and run. And the mother grabs them by the collar, pulls them back around and says, what do you say? And they say, thank you. But you don't really want someone to force them to say thank you. You want them to say it. God doesn't want you to live for him under the threat of annihilation. <laughs> we could just stay under the law if that's all he wanted. He wants you to want to love him. He wants you to want to be with him. He wants you to want to please him. So to do that, he wrote his law on our hearts. That's eternal life. He fundamentally changed who we are. So we have a circumcision made without hands. It's not in the sky. 
It's not in my flesh. It's in my spirit. The book of Romans, book of Romans says that these are matters of the heart by the spirit and not in the flesh. So the Holy Spirit in my heart is a witness to the covenant. At all times, whether I'm young or old, whether the weather's clear or cloudy, he's a reminder, you are a marked man. You have a covenant. You're not the same as these people. You cannot compare yourself to them. You're different. You have a covenant with the faithful God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And the Bible says, it's not in my notes, but just listen. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, he is the ark. He's the ark. As long as you stay in him, you'll be safe. This world is going to end. Did you know that? I told you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end and there's going to be judgment. But we're in him and he delivers us from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Contracts are signed, but covenants are sealed with blood. Jesus shed his blood to finalize this agreement. You know, if there's a big contract, you got to, you know, I, I think I've told you many times I, I bought a house in America. So, you know, they brought the, the, the man came to my house and he had this big stack of papers. It's a loan from the bank, you know, and I have to sign them. And it was like, I don't know, like 20 times or something. I had to sign my name to all these different papers, sign, sign, sign. And I couldn't just say, eh, I'm tired of signing. I I agree. You agree. We all agree. We made agreement, you know, a long time before you showed up at my house. So eh, it's okay. No, it's not okay. It's not official. It's not ratified till I sign. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Blood indicates a death has occurred. But we're not permitted to drink blood. So he handed them a cup of juice and said, this represents my blood. You drink it. Because symbolically you're showing, I'm taking your life into me. We are blood covenant people. Hallelujah. God actually solemnized this treaty. God the Father solemnized this treaty between himself, but not a fragile, unpredictable human being with his son, Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who could keep the terms of the covenant. And then, because you accepted him as your substitute, God puts you in Christ. And the Bible says... In Galatians 3.29, as I close, Galatians 3.29, contemporary English version. So if you belong to Christ, you are now part of Abraham's family. And you will be given what God has promised. You have a covenant with a covenant-keeping God. So he said, I'll bless you. He said, I'll make your name great. The Bible says, the seed of the righteous shall be mighty 
in the earth. He'll make your name great too. Hallelujah. He'll bless you to be a blessing. Woo, hallelujah. Hmm. And through you, through the gospel, through the message, he sent us into all the nations of the world. They'll be blessed. Hallelujah. We are covenant people. We have a better covenant. Would you stand with me to your feet? Thank you for your patience.